we did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network, Verizon. Best and most reliable based on Root Metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network, Verizon. Best and most reliable based on Root Metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks. It's December 12th, 1977, around 11 p.m., and my 13-year-old sorry ass is standing at the southwest corner of St. Catherine and Atwater, waiting for my dad to pick me up after an Aerosmith concert. Blue jeans, jean jacket, and tan work boots. We called them Worky Joes. It's a well-worn ritual. My sister Teresa shuffled the pavement and patiently after ELO and heart shows. If the encore ended early, you might grab the cheapest thing on the menu at the new McDonald's, which was kitty-cornered from the Montreal Forum. You sit in the dining area with all the other kids waiting for their parents. The air is thick with cigarette smoke. You're sitting there trying to make a Christmas ornament out of one of the tin ashtrays. If he's late, you might drop a dime in the payphone on the corner. One thing's certain, he was going to make you wait. He wasn't going to drive around Cabot Square four or five times. A stranger asks you for a cigarette, but you know that's not what he's asking for. You offer him one, then you quickly shuffle down the corner. Finally, you recognize his head silhouetted above the steering wheel. You trudge through the slush into the car right on Atwater, then the Ville Marie Expressway to DeCary, DeCary to the 401, take the Sources Boulevard exit, and you're back in the safe arms of the suburbs. Forty years later, a crisis would unfold in this neighborhood, though the problems had been simmering since the early 1980s. This is who killed Teresa. About midway through doing the Teresa Martin piece, uh, I was contacted by somebody uh, who worked at, at one of the homeless shelters in Montreal, um, asking if I would do uh, more podcasts featuring uh, 
indigenous stories, native stories. I think they were particularly uh, attracted because um, I think in the third episode, I, I had mentioned the case of Claudia Beauvais, the 22-year-old um, First Nations woman from Kanawange who, uh, whose body was found on the, the Douglas Psychiatric Institute grounds. Uh, in Verdun in 1969, which uh, I think they were intrigued by that um, and wanted to know what else I had. And uh, and uh, I explained what, well, I'll explain here, you know, uh, without trying to turn it into a thing, I try to tell those stories when I can. Uh, we, did, we did a podcast on the Valdor situation uh, but the, the fact of the matter is, that it, 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 as you would imagine, it's hard to find information. They're not, there's not a lot of reporting on, on uh, those things, so it's, it's, it's very difficult to find source information. Um, so that's my only reluctance, is there's nothing to talk about. Um, that's the, but nevertheless, um, you know, as I explained to them, um, if a story is intriguing and it has and it hooks me, then then I'm I'm going to tell it. Um, and what they wanted me uh, to feature was something quite contemporary, and and that's the the disappearance and murders of uh, indigenous women, particularly Inuit mo- women, in um, downtown Montreal, um, and that this was cur- occurring in the last, um, as I say, it's sort of developed in the 80s, but it had reached a, a nexus in, in the last four or five years. Um, and again, you know, I sort of said, that's not that's not really my uh, sweet spot talking about contemporary stuff. I, I tend to gravitate to the historical. Because without new information, all you're doing is reporting on the reporting. And I really hate that kind of uh, story. Um but they were persistent, and um, I, I was intrigued by uh, the the stories that they shared. Um, so I, I agreed to do it. And um, thematically, I mean, I sort of alluded to this last time. Does this tie in? Yeah. If you if you if you stick around, there's going to be a, a grand design to everything uh, we. Uh, we talk about in the next six months. Uh, you know, the other thing, of course, they, they asked me was, was, was Teresa native? My sister, was she native? And um, not that that would matter one way or, or another. Or, well, it would matter, but uh, it wouldn't affect my reporting. Um, but no, uh, Teresa's not um, First Nations. Pretty, pretty Irish and and uh, French uh, off the boat uh, in 1660s in Quebec City, um, um, and but for one generation that that spent time in Ontario uh, and then hopped over back to Quebec, pretty uh, pretty Quebecois, pretty much as French as you can get, to tell you the truth. Um, all of that is to say, t- today I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about this story that was brought to me, um, and uh, more often than not, I uh, I get ideas from people who bring the, to 
bring who bring the idea to me. Um, heck, Teresa Martin, 69 murder of Teresa Martin uh, was nothing, was little more than a postage, postage stamp article in the Gazette when it started and it, that turned out to be nine parts. So this will not be nine parts, but um, nevertheless, um, we're, we're going to tell it. One of the first to report on this ongoing crisis in downtown Montreal was a Gazette reporter, Christopher Curtis, on August 29th, 2017, the body of Siasi Tulagak was found hanging from the small balcony of a Shamadi Street apartment. Within 24 hours, Sharon Barron's body was found hanging in a closet inside her apartment in Dorval. In both cases, the Montreal police considered the deaths of the two Inuit women as suicides. People who knew the two women said that they suspected foul play, but when they tried to communicate this to the police, their information was brushed aside. Uh, and this is, uh, this is an anonymous witness from Christopher Curtis's of reporting. This was just hours after they found Siasi, uh, and the cops wouldn't even write down what we were saying. It felt like they just didn't take it seriously. Both uh, Tulagak and Baron frequented Montreal's Cabot Square. Uh, today, that small park, it's on the western edge of Montreal. It's well known for the drug and sex trade solicitation. Cabot Square functions much like New York City's uh, Washington Square Park in that it's it's popular both with with tourists and the city's uh, fringe subcultures. So it, it can be a very different experience day from night. Um, although, uh, I, I mean, I know Washington Square Park from when I, I lived in New York City. Much has changed. Uh, I, I, I just read yesterday, there's, there's a lot going on now that we're opening up with Washington Square Park. Uh, there's the old guard of people who live there and the new guard of people who are coming out and, and you know want to have drum circles all night this kind of thing and I, I believe they had a town hall this weekend where um, you, you know one of the activists came right out and, and just pointed the finger at uh, you know the police officer in charge of that district and, and and called him I quote like a fucking racist or something like that so <laughs> um Plus ça change. Um, I don't think so. Not, not, not so different from Cabot Square, uh, uh, I would think. Cabot Square, you know, that McDonald's uh, I referred to in the opening. It's still there. It's kitty-cornered from the, where the Montreal Forum used to be, though the Montreal Canadiens have long moved their axe south to the Bell Centre. Uh, after a brief stint as a, it was a Japanese restaurant for a while, um, and then that McDonald's building became the Resilience Day Shelter. Um, it's uh, it's been the main refuge for uh, the neighborhood's urban poor since Open Door moved their ministry from the St. Stephen's Anglican Church just south of the square to the McGill Ghetto east of uh, of the city. 
And since that move, that open door moved in 2018. And according to Resiliences, the other, the other shelter's website, quote, 14 people have died, mostly indigenous women, end quote, from the Cabot Square area. Turning back to the, the, the deaths of the two women, two sources said uh, they were with uh, Siasi Tulagak uh, in the early morning hours before she died. And they were with her in the lobby of an apartment building on Rue Saint-Marc, a couple of blocks from the square. Around 4 a.m., they say they observed the 27-year-old leaving uh, the building with a man in his 30s I smoke crack cocaine and I drink, but the night I, I was sober, and I'm telling you, she left with that man. Uh, the Montreal Police's Aboriginal Liaison Officer insisted that investigators have done the legwork on this. They've looked at all the information that was gathered. Siasi and Sharon both came to the city of Montreal from Quebec's northern regions, spending years drifting in and out of any number of the city's shelters. In 2017, David Chapman was running the Open Door Shelter, then still located, it was still located near Cabot Square. And Chapman was well acquainted with both women and he says, uh, these, these were women who came to Montreal in search of a better life, having seen uh, more than a person should see in their youth. What they found when they got here was people looking to take advantage of them. One definite problem is that, particularly young Inuit women, they don't have confidence in the police. You come to Montreal and there's this dynamic of anonymity, right? And and it takes a while to adapt to that and, and, and to get used to the fact that there are people who will be very intentional in taking advantage of you. That, that at, at a level that they would not experience in a small northern community. And so, um, uh, and so for sure, for sure the young Inuit women are targeted just the other day. You know, three young Inuit women who just graduated high school came by and they were visiting a friend who was sleeping here on the, at the center during the day with a drug problem. And, uh, and this was their first night in Montreal and they were gonna go out and have some drinks together. And I remember one of my workers who just couldn't help himself came running up and just said, you know, you wanna get out of here. Don't, you know, just don't be around here. You, this is, you know, you know, basically there are people who will be looking for you. And, and so run while you can, you know, it looks friendly and safe, but it's not, you know, and, and so get out. The problem is that message is usually not really heard. That was David Chapman from the Open Door Shelter in Montreal. Chapman had stated that he would often drive open door clients directly to the Montreal airport and put them on a plane back to their northern villages. Uh, a one-way ticket being a cheaper and more efficient intervention to get these women off the street and out of life-threatening 
situations involving drugs and sex trafficking. Although that in itself was a difficult undertaking. Uh, Even to get on the plane at that time, I'm sure it's even worse now, you needed two forms of identification. And for people on the street, you know, having two forms of identification is a monumentous task. It can take up to, I would, you know, saying it would take two weeks is... um, is generous uh and two weeks to a a homeless individual is is a lifetime uh, asking them to um you know sustain and wait for that that amount of time Uh, according to recent statistics which are not so recent i think these are from 2016 but such is such is the nature of statistics roughly 15 percent of montreal's indigenous community are in need of core housing assistance. Um, I think it hovers around 10 to 15 percent. I think a couple of years ago they counted 300 or excuse me 3,000 homeless in Montreal. I, I think that's grossly underestimated and the, and estimated that 10 percent of those were uh, indigenous, so roughly 300. And again, I think that's grossly underestimated. Uh, now, the, the nonprofit community is not immune to conflict and controversy. Online reviews for the Resilience Shelter, that's the one that occupied the McDonald's, uh, say the staff regularly abuses patrons. Um, another uh, comment offered, quote, no federal government should ever fund any part of resilience. It's a scam and the staff are ignorant. In 2019, David Chapman was fired from Open Door for insubordination. Workers reported they were subject to instances of violence due to understaffing at the facility, which by then had moved to the Park Avenue um, location. Uh, n- none of this is to pick on Chapman or or, or these places who are uh, overworked and underpaid and under tremendous amount of stress uh, having to operate these facilities. Um, but it is to say that um, if, if, if you're a client, where do you go when you, when you can't even trust the people who are, or who are there in place to protect you, um, these nonprofits and, um, and the police? Tulagak was from Pavernatuk, a small fishing village on the eastern shores of Hudson Bay. According to her niece, she could be annoying and loving at the same time. She was feisty, she would tease you, and she wouldn't take any flack from anyone. But there was a tender side to her. She looked after the elder women in, on the street. She shared her food and drinks, and she could be very nurturing. 28-year-old Sharon Barron came to Montreal from uh, a small Inuit village near the tip of Ungava Bay. According to John Tessier, who uh, was an outreach worker with Open Door, he may still be, Barron was more cool and collected, real quiet. She was sort of the opposite of Tulagak uh, in many ways, and she had a real swagger about her.
How does someone like Sharon or Siasi end up on the streets? One possible scenario I've heard goes something like this. Perhaps you've come to Montreal accompanying an elderly parent or relative for surgery. None of the clinics in northern Quebec offer specialized medical treatment, so you must visit one of the ma major hospitals in a place like Montreal. The government will provide for the patient's care and lodgings, but not for you. For you, uh, for the duration of the medical treatment, which may last several weeks, you're left to your own devices. You've heard of Cabot Square. Um, others have come before you. They've done the same thing. So you take the three-kilometer walk along St. Catherine from the bus station up the street from Park Emily Gamelin or from Dorval Airport. You take the bus to, actually, to Park Emily Gamelin. Um, <clears throat> the area is flashy compared to your village. It's got clubs. It's got condos, coffee shops. You stop in a bar, order a Coke. A man approaches you and he offers to buy you drinks. Later that night, when you've got nowhere to go, he offers you a place up the street for your lodging. For a while, the drinks and the lodging, and later drugs, are free. But then one day, he starts demanding that you pay the rent. When you say you can't afford it without a job, he offers you one. Working for him in his sex trade. Before long, you're addicted to crack and doling out sex in exchange for a fix and receiving regular beatings for failure to pay your rent. By mid-September 2017, it was roughly two weeks um, after her, her death, Vice News reported that it had obtained information from a police report where Siasi Tulagak called 911 just hours before her death about a man who was trying to force her down a downtown alley. Later that evening, she talked to police officers about the event. In addition, nine sources came forward to say that the man was a known pimp from the area who targeted Inuit homeless women, attempting to coerce them into sex trade work. Further, before learning of the police report, the Gazette interviewed the man. The alleged pimp stated that he had been drinking with Tulagak, at a bar at Towers Street and St. Catherine in the early morning hours, the night that she died. Around 3 a.m., they moved a block east to the St. Mark apartment, a building locals by now had identified as one they commonly referred to as the Crack Hotel. This is where he last saw Tulagak leaving the building around 4 a.m. with an unidentified man. Other witnesses from that night say they saw Tulagak get into a silver sedan after leaving the building. And this is the 3 a.m. pimp. Around 5.30 a.m. I went to lay down, but something told me to get up. I heard a really deep scream coming from Shamady Street. About two minutes later, police started flying down the road. I guess that's when they found the body. The day after Curtis published this story, police announced they had reopened the investigation into the death of Siasi Telegach. I would hope so. But it took investigators over two weeks to interview staff and clients of The Open Door. The, the shelter was a focal point for Siasi's existence. She'd eaten her meals there 
and use the computer terminals to communicate with family back home in northern Quebec. Jessica Keanu, project director of ISQUE, a Justice Canada program designed to address the high levels of violence against Indigenous women in Montreal, assessed the situation as follows. Historically, with missing and murdered Indigenous women, people know who the suspect is, but don't believe police will follow up on the information they provide. Two key witnesses in the matter eventually left the city out of fear for their safety. Locals believe police weren't thorough enough in their initial investigation because Tulagak was homeless, Inuk, and an addict. The question nags. Why would someone call 911 fearing someone was trying to force them down an alley then decide to take their own life two hours later. Selena Ross wrote about the place where Siasi Tulagak was found hanging. The porch had the wrought iron railings that are typical of Montreal. It was raised like a low balcony, leaving enough space underneath to accommodate the entrance to a basement apartment. Curved steps led up one side and on the opposite side, the top railing was screwed to a homemade wooden planter full of flowers. Tulagak's body hung from the side of the porch that held the planter. The police reportedly told the homeowners this. That was part of why it didn't make sense when police deemed her death to be a suicide. That's from an article branded how Inuit women in Montreal end up on the street or dead in the National Observer by Selena Ross. You should look it up. Um, I've linked it on the website, which is theresaallore.com, T-H-E-R-E-S-A-A-L-L-O-R-E.com. Look up Christopher Curtis too. Um, A lot of his uh, early stuff on these cases is archived, but um, he's a great reporter. well, both he and Selena um, were were the were the run, ones really driving this story in the initial days. Uh, so check them out. Uh, Siasi Tulagak was short; she was barely five feet tall, as she's often mistaken for a high school student. Her feet would have barely been off the ground, possibly as low as a foot above the sidewalk. Uh, Her family insisted that she was not suicidal, uh, though um, uh, those kind of protestations are not unusual, and sometimes it's unfortunate, but it's true. Um, It's possibly very much the case with Sharon Barron that she took her own life. There's more on that a little later here. Within days, the the police told the media that Tulagak hung herself from the balcony of of her apartment. Tulagak was homeless. She lived on the streets, often under balconies, such as the one on Rue Shamadi. So it's it's misinformation that this was her apartment. It was a apartment. The the actual owners of the the Shamadi property, um, uh, they actually were interviewed by... uh, 
Selena, and they came to the more obvious conclusion. She didn't die here. She was dead when she arrived here. Somebody hanged her here. <laughs> finally, finally someone says it. Uh, nevertheless, within two days, police closed the case. Uh, two days is not even enough time for a coroner's determination. Uh, it would be nice to know what the coroner believed uh, medically, legally, uh, about the Siasi Tilagak um, death. Right? I mean, that's a key question. How did the coroner believe Siasi died? For the ones finding new ways to ensure the job always gets done. For the ones wearing many hats. For the ones who are hands-on, even from far away. And the ones keeping business moving forward. We are Granger, Offering supplies and solutions for every industry. With 24-7 support and experienced staff at over 250 local branches. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network, Verizon. Best and most reliable based on Root Metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network, Verizon. Best and most reliable based on Root Metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks. Though Sharon Barron may have committed suicide, the trajectory that brought her to that end is not an unfamiliar story of what happens to indigenous women who come in contact with the hard edges of Cabot Square.
the following is, this is again, uh, not from me. This is from the reporting of Selena Ross. Baron had been living with her boyfriend, uh, a guy named Miko Griffin, for five years in, in their Dorval apartment. Miko was a former pilot for Air Inuit. One summer, he proposed spending July and August at his family's camp uh, along the coast of Hudson's Bay. While visiting northern Quebec, Baron's mother was attacked by a polar bear and had to be flown to Montreal for treatment. Uh, Sharon Barron would visit her mother regularly while she was convalescing, coincidentally at a facility that happened to be across the street from Cabot Square. One evening around 1 a.m., she was waiting for the night bus to take her back to Dorval at the corner of St. Catherine and Atwater when a man approached her, started chatting, then offered her some crack. It's definitely someone I didn't know said Miko Griffin, and I did get the feeling it was someone she didn't know either. Sharon wasn't in the habit of taking hard drugs, but in this case, Sharon tried crack. Sharon Barron then went missing for about a week. Miko eventually found her in the Cabot Square area and took her home. Miko says that after that, uh, she was no longer the same, she became loud and argumentative. She'd often return to the downtown area. When she'd return home, she'd have bruises on her body, often crack pipe burns. This is when Miko realized that Sharon had become addicted to drugs and was doing sex work. Within six months, she'd moved out of the Dorval apartment and was living full-time on the streets. In 2016, Sharon Barron returned to Dorval trying to get clean. She had a new boyfriend, Matthew Smith, and they lived together in a one-bedroom apartment. The night she died, Sharon and Matthew were high on vodka and crack cocaine. Matthew passed out, so Sharon went to a neighborhood bar. Staff said she appeared her normal self. Smith woke up in a hospital bed, with police telling him he had called 911 reporting suicidal feelings. When police arrived at the Dorval apartment, they found Barron hanging in their closet. There was no suicide note. Smith stated that he didn't know she had wandered into the closet because he had, quote, completely blacked out, end quote. He said he had no doubt that Barron committed suicide, though exactly what the coroner determined was not known at the time that Selena Ross filed her story. The rumors that spread among the denizens of Cabot Square range from a serial killer, possibly a pimp or drug dealer who disguises the deaths of his sex workers as suicides, to at the very least a pimp drug dealer exploiting Inuit women and driving them to these unfortunate outcomes. That man who heard the screaming from Rue Shamadi at 5.30 a.m., uh, allegedly Siassi's own pimp, we later learn, was asked if he could remember any similar cases uh, from this area. And he recalled the case of 33-year-old Nunavik homeless woman named uh, Nunya Gray. 
Gray was found um, years earlier, on November 3rd, 2011, hanging in the bathroom of a crack house on Atwater Street. Again, there was no suicide note. The body was in such an advanced state of decomposition that the death was again quickly ruled a suicide, um, <clears throat> in, in this case by the coroner as well. And like Sharon Barron, Gray had come to Montreal to accompany a relative during a medical procedure. According to John Tessier, that outwork, uh, outreach worker with the Open Door Shelter, Gray had been part of the same group that Tulagak would later join uh, with the same pimp. Tessier elaborated, he's been in this area for 20 years and he's been doing the same thing for 20 years, basically corralling young Inuit to do whatever it is they do to help them to get high. This pimp would regularly brand his property. His trademark burn was two lines from a crack pipe, often on the victim's arm as a kind of tattooing. The man's court records included at least two charges for assault with a weapon and one for conspiracy to commit murder. However, in developing this profile, it's important not to become too attached to any one individual. People from the area described two or three men who worked the Cabot Square neighborhood singling out Inuit women. None of these men were Inuk. So returning to the pimp that Selena Ross talked talk to, I ask myself, in the matter of Nunya Gray, is, is Tulagak's pimp basically laying out a confession uh, in describing this? Is, is this kind of like a roadmap for his own actions? Um, you get the feeling that this pimp is deliberately taunting reporters like Selena Ross uh, because he knows there's no evidence and he knows the Montreal police really won't make the effort to pursue justice. I uh, exchanged messages with uh, Ross about that interview and uh, she said, I didn't trust pretty much anything I heard from the pimp. I presented it at face value and I don't have much new to say about those particular cases four years later. there But there have been some related violent episodes downtown since then, which was really depressing to hear, since it seemed not much is changing. Uh, as, as we said, the police were quickly uh, rushing to a verdict of suicide because that's the easiest outcome to manage. Maybe it is suicide. Maybe these women displaced from their homes reach a point of despair. They miss their families. They miss their culture. So they do what they've heard others have done in the past and they take their own lives. Or maybe it's someone taking advantage of this cultural phenomena and masking murder as suicide. As Jessica Keano of the Native Women's Shelter offered about Tulagak's death, I don't think it was anything like some serial killer with an elaborate plan. I think it's just really easy. Mm -hmm.
time passes, people stop talking about Sharon and Siasi. Their names get added to roles of murdered and missing. They're called out in annual vigils at Cabot Square. Cabot Square is, of course, named after John Cabot, um, the Italian explorer. Um, his name's actually Giovanni Cabotto. Uh, he's said to be to have been one of the first Europeans to discover North America. There's a there's a statue of Cabot at the center of that square. It hasn't been toppled yet. I guess it's designed so that people can congregate at the feet of the old navigator. You know, give us your tired, your poor, huddled masses. Something to that effect. And they did. Last year, Christopher Curtis uh, left Post Media. He left the Montreal Gazette in, in his words to do the projects that I wanted to do and not really work on traffic reports and bullshit. <laughs> uh, boy, kindred spirit there, Christopher Curtis. <laughs> uh, so Christopher now works on projects like Ricochet and his own The, the Rover that focus on stories uh, no longer covered by Canadian investigative journalism, uh, specific Indigenous issues, uh, Quebec Indigenous issues. Um, you know, the, of course, you know, the CBC and the Globe and Mail, they're going to blanket the news feeds with stories about mass graves at residential schools. That, that, you know, they have all the backing and, and will to do that, and they will do that, and they'll do a very good, good job. But, um, you know, that's not the only story, and, and who's, gonna, who's gonna cover stories like this? Who's gonna cover Valdor, for instance? Um, you should, uh, if you don't know Ricochet, I've put a, a, a link on the, um, it's one of these new online journalism forms. It's very, very good. And and the Rover. I put links to both of them there. I I spoke with, with Chris Curtis about the events from 2017 around Cabot Square. And he said um, the, the, the pimp, that pimp who is a suspect in... Uh, Siasi's case, uh, he, he said he, he thought he might be doing prison for sexual assault. He's well known in the area as being uh, a scary dude. He's known, um, he's known as O.D. Uh, he once tried to spar with Chris, but Chris is bigger than him. Motherfucker, I will kill you. <laughs> Chris, Chris said. As we talked... Um, uh, our focus turned to the case of Donna Paré. This is another Inuit woman who disappeared from Montreal in December 2018. Uh, little is known about the Paré case, so I'm just going to read from what's reported on the Montreal Police's website, the SPVM. 
Uh, Ms. Paré uh, was reported missing on March 26, 2019. She has black hair and brown eyes. She last heard from her uh, on December uh, 2018. Ms. Paré is homeless and could use places such as the Barry Yukam and Place des Arts metros, the McDonald on St. Catherine Street East, or Barry Park. Investigators fear for her health and safety, and she may have bad associates. She does not have a bank card or cell phone. Uh, and the, the, the rest is worth reading, um, because it's worth reading. Sun Youth will offer a award of up to $2,000 for any information that will allow us to find uh, Donna Paré. Anyone with information about this disappearance can communicate it uh, by uh, calling 911, going to their neighborhood station, or sending it anonymously and confidentially to InfoCrime Montreal at 514-393-1133 or online. That McDonald's they're referring to, the, the other McDonald's, is the one uh, south of uh, Place Emilie Gamelin. And I'm well familiar with, with that area. Uh, Banque, Montreal's major library, is located uh, just north of the Emily Gamelin Park. So I spend a lot of my time when I'm in Montreal in that area doing research. Uh, in, in fact, the, the sound you hear at the beginning of the Francine Da Silva podcast and I've linked it here. Um, anyway, Francine da Silva. The sound of the, the sound you hear at the beginning of the podcast. That's the sound of the metal rigging hitting the side of a flag banner pole outside that McDonald's. I I had supper two times uh, at that McDonald's over a long weekend. No, I didn't. I didn't go to the Gilded Truffle or anything like that. You know, I, <laughs> look. Look, when I'm in Montreal, I go where the cops go, right? I go where the people hang out. I get two quarter pounders with cheese, right? Thank you very much. Um, no, that's what I did. Um, I don't want to go to some fancy restaurant. Okay, I've been, I have been to, I've been to Joe Beef, all right? I'm going to cop to that. But normally it's, you know, it's it's where the police and, and the cast of the Iceman cometh hang out. That's where I go in Montreal. Um, and, and this, this is true. When, when I left that McDonald's around dusk, I tried to snap a picture of a girl and her pimp. And this guy, I mean, he nearly took my head off. Um, and as Christopher Curtis told me, uh, these are his words. If Paré was hanging around Emily Gamelin, that's heroin. If she went missing, you have to assume she's dead. And uh, and then he elaborated some, and I'm I'm going to play this uh, from Christopher Curtis from our for our, our conversation. I uh, I remember just being shocked at how quickly that went away. Yes. And by that point, I was losing a lot of uh, I was losing a lot of that free time that I used to have in the newsroom to look into these kinds of things. So I didn't, I didn't follow up as much as I, I could have or would have wanted to. But yeah. uh, and I've kind of still 
kicking myself about that. But if she was hanging around Emily Gemlay, like that's that's heroin. That's like that's a that's a, a, a lot. Both scenes are tough. Like the West End is, is tough. It's hard to know exactly what happened to women like like Donna Pare, and sort of brings me around to the the beginning of this discussion. It, it you know it would hard it would be hard to do a podcast exclusively around the case of Donna Pare because all we really know is that notice from the Montreal police and that notice is is parroted and and sort of you know it's shuffled and reconfigured in various um, newspaper articles but nevertheless it is it is the same thing because everybody knows the same thing only that so that's um that is at the root of I think everyone's frustration with reporting on these things um, you know people people are fearful they're unwilling to talk um, they don't want to disappear like Pare. We have some knowledge of victims like Siasi and, and Nunya. We, we know even less about the men who abuse them. And for, for some perspective, consider the case of 49-year-old Emmanuel Pacman Stark, a Montreal pimp found guilty in March 2021 of orchestrating the gang rape of a young woman. Now, I'm, I'm going to tell you uh, about Stark, but before I do, I, let me be perfectly clear. I am not saying Stark is the pimp from Cabot Square. Uh, I think if he was, uh, Selena Ross would have recognized his picture uh, as the guy she spoke to, um, or, or Christopher Curtis would have said that's also OD. So I am in no way saying that. I, I want to say this because people get confused sometimes when I talk like this. This is an example of a Montreal pimp. End. Full stop. So, Dark first met this young Cégep student at a Pierrefonds fast food restaurant in 1995. Uh, he moved into her apartment and he insisted she work as a stripper for him, forcing her to clubs like Caesar's Palace in downtown Montreal, demanding that she get on stage. Caesar's Palace is a 10-minute straight shot down St. Catherine Street from Cabot Square. One day, between seven and nine men show up at their Laval apartment. Uh, this student was gang-raped while Stark collected money from the men saying all this wasn't for free. The student ended up sex trafficking for him with all of the money going to Stark. When she refused, he would beat her. The woman only escaped when one time Stark beat her so badly she ended up in the Sacré-Cœur hospital and she only managed to escape uh, that and his terrifying influence by fleeing um, out of Canada. At trial, the judge was considering whether to sentence Stark as a dangerous or long-term offender. In 2018, he had been convicted of human trafficking, with 13 charges extending from offenses committed between 2016 and 2017 in and around Place uh, Emily Gamelin. In these cases, Stark preyed on two area crack addicts and made them work for him as prostitutes again, without sharing any of the money he received. 
At the time, both women were residents of Montreal homeless shelters. He had a machete and the crack, so you do what he tells you, one of the women testified. During the trial, it was disclosed that Stark had a lengthy criminal record and was described as being a member of a Montreal street gang. A couple of years ago, um, Frontline, PBS Frontline, did a great uh, profile on um, the sex trade, I believe in the Phoenix, Arizona area. And they, they, you know, they brought up a lot of good points in that sort of, um, it, you know, that sex trafficking is a hidden, hidden crime. Um, it's unique in, in that, uh, you know, even the Johns, uh, you know, want to be, everyone wants to rename, remain anonymous. Certainly, cer certainly the pimp, um, certainly the girls and certainly the Johns, uh, right? Um, and part of the challenge in bringing focus to this was, well, the first thing was to stop treating uh, um, the, the women as criminals and starting to treat them as victims. That was the first shift. And then, of course, to, to increase the severity of the punishment to the Johns, who were really getting up, you know, basically what could happen is they could, they could pay a fine and then be released. And uh, they stepped this up and said, no, no, we're going to photograph you and it's going to be in the paper and your wife is, you wives are going to find out this kind of thing. So, so that helped. Um, you know, the other interesting point they brought up is, um, which is fairly obvious, but worth repeating, a drug can only be used once. Uh, a woman can be sex trafficked again and again and again and again. So uh, uh, you, a, a, a pimp can make more money off uh, sex trafficking than, than they can from from the, <clears throat> the sell and solicitation of, of drugs like heroin. The coroner reports. The coroner reports, as I mentioned earlier, it would be nice if someone went back and found out what the coroner had to say about these cases. Well, someone did. Me. Sharon Barron's coroner's report uh, provides the following circumstances of her death. On the evening of August 29th, 2017, Barron and her partner, Matthew Smith, consumed alcohol and street drugs, quote, crack. They arrived together at their Dorval apartment at 11.10 p.m. Smith was so intoxicated he could not remember what happened next. The apartment entrance surveillance camera captured Barron leaving the building around 12.44 a.m., and that's in the morning of August 30th, 2017. She may have had a bottle under her arm. She returned at 2 a.m., then she left again around 4 a.m. Her return to the apartment was not captured on the camera. At 7.32 a.m., SPVM officers received a call from a man who said he was suicidal he told dispatch he had a knife in his hand. This turns out to be Matthew Smith. After police and paramedics arrive and manage to get Smith under control, police searched the home and they discovered Sharon Barron, 
semi-seated, curled up on the floor of the wardrobe of the bedroom. In trying to extricate her from the closet, police found that she had been hanged. After unhooking her from the closet, paramedics attempted cardiopulmonary resuscitation, and an ambulance was called around 7.38 a.m. During this time, Sharon Barron showed no rigidity and her skin was still warm. Paramedics continued to try to resuscitate her uh, as she was transferred to the emergency room of the Lachine Hospital. They were unsuccessful and Sharon Barron was pronounced dead at 8.41 a.m. August 30th, 2017. Sharon was hung with a computer power cable. The toxicological analysis showed evidence of cocaine in her system and a blood alcohol level of 216 milligrams. That's a high level that can trigger anger and depression, memory loss, and severe physical disability. The coroner's analysis elaborated further on the circumstances that led up to Barron's death. Sharon Barron had lived with Matthew Smith for approximately two years. Both had alcohol and cocaine use disorders. According to a police report, Barron was frequently uh, absent from home, engaged in excessive consumption of drugs, and often only returned to Dorval when she was financially strapped for cash. There were often physical conflicts. Police were called to intervene in December 2016, and then again July 2017. According to police reports, Barron proposed a suicide pact several times to her partner. No suicide note was found in the apartment the night that she died. The coroner concluded that Sharon Barron died of compression asphyxiation of the neck structures following the hanging, finally determining, quote, it is a suicide, end quote. Note here that in 2012, uh, in the Nunya Gray case, the coroner also determined a probable cause of death by asphyxiation by hanging with a conclusion of suicide. Um, and I bring up that much detail about the Sharon Barron coroner's report because, uh, because it's relevant in relation to what the coroner says about Siasi Tulagak. In the context of, uh, of the conclusions uh, in the cases of Barron and Gray. So in Siasi's report, at 5.53 a.m. August 29th, 2017, an SPVM patrol car was intercepted by a passerby who told officers there was a body hanging from a building. Police then found Tulagak hanging from the balcony of the Shamadi Street apartment building. She was identified by her ID papers, which were found in her clothing. P uh, police were unable to resuscitate her, and Tulagak was pronounced dead at 6.50 a.m. at the Montreal General Hospital. Hanging was determined as the cause of death, but the instrument used to hang her wasn't identified. Toxicological analysis was performed, but the results were not disclosed. 
the coroner determined that Siasi Tulagak died of suffocation by hanging, then concluded, quote, this is a violent death, end quote. The report goes on to say that it is not the role of the coroner to pronounce the civil or criminal person responsible in such matters, and as this is, quote, still an open file at the SPVM, the analysis of the event remains open. Violent death is in stark contrast to the definite conclusion of suicide uh, in the cases of Barron and Gray. It directly contradicts the police's determination of suicide in the initial days after the discovery of uh, Tulagak's body in the early uh, September 2017. Uh, here, I should point out that Sharon Barron's coroner's report was submitted in March 2018. Siasi Tulagak's report took over a year further to complete. The coroner submitting the report in May 2019. I can tell you it's it's not uh, unusual for a coroner to uh, take some time to file a report. I can tell you I can tell you in my own case, uh, my my sister's report took five years to be filed, um, and it took me a long time to figure out why that was. Um, We'll get into why that was. Uh, so, um, body found in 79, not reported until 83, 84. Well, there was an, an, an event that unfolded uh, in uh, the coroner's jurisdiction during that time, uh, known as the Rock Forest Massacre, uh, that uh, involved the chief investigator from the Sarité de Quebec, who also happened to be the chief investigator um, for my sister's case. Um, so politically, they needed for that event to play out in the newspapers and the courts first before um, calling any uh, notori further notoriety to the chief investigator, Rock Goudreau. Uh, coroner's reports are highly sensitive and controversial. I. Um, I, uh, there's an, there's another podcaster who, he, he did, a, he did a piece on Louise Chaput, Chapeau, um, and, and I happened to find out that his father was a coroner from the Otwe, uh, area, and I, and I asked, I asked him, I explained the situation with my sister, and, and I share, I said, would you, would you mind showing him, um, my sister's coroner's reports and getting his, uh, interpretation of these things. And he said, oh, of course, no, not a problem. I'll do that. And uh, so I shared the documents to this guy, this podcaster, and I never heard from him again. <laughs> it's like, boom. Like, hey, what did your dad say? Nothing. Silence. Stone. Silence. So these things, these things are controversial to, <laughs> with, without a doubt. Um, uh, so, so, yeah, these things take time, though what I do find odd is that Siasi's report takes an additional 14 months 
to file, even though both both victims were pronounced dead essentially within 24 hours of each other, right? What's that about? When I, I contacted the Montreal police to give me an update on Siassi's uh, investigation, given given this news, given that it's like, oh, whoops. Uh, you know, everybody fucked off and, and started reporting exclusively about traffic jams and COVID. Um, and lo and behold, during this period, um, um, a coroner's determination gets snuck out. And uh, it's like, okay, would you care to comment on the fact that it, it, this is conclusively not suicide? That the, the coroner has very clearly handed the matter back into your hands, SPVM. And I was told, quote, unfortunately, I can't give you any information concerning this case. When I pressed, I was told uh, to file an access to information request. Uh, so no free flowing of information here. Uh, and I did that. I, I, I filed the report, uh, the, the, the report or the, the Freedom of Information Act request. Uh, and I will I will be reporting out on the um, SPVM's response uh, as soon as I get one. I'm not holding my breath. It's hard to mask your frustration with these things. I clearly can't. Um, the The election of a, a new prime minister, Justin Trudeau, in 2015, and then the you know, the, the, the long buildup to the 2019 publication um, of the report, uh, Canada's National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls. Uh, you know, these were these were kind of moments of failed promises, kind of, <laughs> for Can uh, Canada's Indigenous peoples, um, for, for all Canadians, uh, really. Uh, you know, add to that the long history of abuses suffered by Indigenous women in, in Valdor, spoken about this several times at the hands of the Sûreté de Québec and the 2019 Viennes Commission report that came out of that crisis. You know, this is all um, painful, embarrassing reminders of injustice. Uh, so add to that, in, in, in 2020, uh, Quebec's premier, Fra François Legault, appointed a former Montreal police officer Ian Lafreniere to take over the province's Ministry of Indigenous Affairs. Nagusset is the executive director of the Native Women's Shelter of Montreal, and she joins me now. Nagusset, welcome to Power Play. It's good to see you. Um, when you heard the premier um, announcing Mr. Lafreniere would become Quebec's new Indigenous Affairs, Minister, what was your immediate reaction? Shock. I was uh, just shocked. I almost thought it was a joke, right? The thing is that, you know, here in Montreal um, and working with the SPVM, we've had a very fragile, broken relationship. So I immediately thought of all the people who have been coming forward to talk about the different abuses that have happened from the police, how many times we've gone to the table and tried to make a better working relationship, and then to hear that they appointed Ian Lafreniere as uh, Indigenous Services uh, 
whatever his title is, very, very, very shocked. That's a Nagaset of Montreal's Native Women's Shelter. Uh, about the Montreal Police Force, uh, the SPVM, Christopher Curtis had this to say. Uh, they have a low clearance rate, they're fucking lazy, yeah. they, they're super racist, yeah. they all live in the fucking suburbs, yeah. uh, they're really rough. I mean, I got, when I was covering something, I got knocked out by a cop once, that was something. Are you serious? Jesus. Jesus. No, yeah. I, gotta, yeah. I, yeah. I would want to smack my face too, though. So <laughs> Putting Ian Lafreniere in charge of Indigenous Affairs isn't just a case of placing a wolf in the fold. It's leaving the wolf with the keys at the entrance of the whole fucking farm. Turning back to where we started... Uh, it's 1977, there I am, I'm standing across from Cabot Square. You know, was that a uh, there-but-the-grace-of-God moment for me? Not even close. A whole lot of advantage put me on that same street corner uh, Sharon Barron would face decades later. I, I, I had a dad with a car and a home to go to. That home had a phone to call. When I entered that McDonald's, no one would try to escort me off the premises. I I could afford the concert ticket when I protest and say, yeah, but I, you know, I paid for that ticket, uh, you know, with money from my Gazette paper route. How did I get that paper route? Why did the Gazette choose to hire me to deliver their papers? In the summer of 1983, I was back at Cabot Square sitting on the grass with friends, waiting for the form doors to open up so we could all see the David Bowie concert. No one harassed us. The police didn't try to escort us from the park. When I get sick, I can go to the doctor. Where I currently live, there's at least a half dozen modern medical facilities, many of them, like Duke, the envy of the nation, within driving distance from my home. I don't have to take a bus or a plane to get there. I don't get attacked by bears. What can you do? Everyone says, I'm sorry, but no one wants to change anything. This is who killed Teresa. <clears throat> you know, I say that and remember that I have never been attacked by a bear. I have been chased by bears. Uh, I used to plant trees in Northern Ontario for the Eddie Match Company. Um, and encountering a black bear in a windrow was, was a most unpleasant thing. You'd, you'd run your ass back to the white van, uh, just, just lickety-split. Um, Uh, that's a lot of information uh, today. We'll probably, 
we'll probably update on on the progression of this uh, later later in the summer into the fall uh, if you like the podcast uh, please I don't know do whatever you do share it on social media review it uh, if you go to the website TeresaLore.com. Uh, there's all kind. Of, all the links are there to uh, podcast platforms like iTunes and Amazon and uh, Spotify, as well as social. The social media platforms where I most commonly communicate: um, Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. Um, uh, I don't know. I don't think I. I don't think you know. There's a lot of words today. I think I'll just leave it at that um, and let you stew and think on that a little bit. And with that, I'll sign off. Uh, This is Who Killed Teresa. I'm your host, John Ellor. Have yourselves a great, great day. A defector from the petty wars that shall shut up away. There's comfort in melancholy when there's no need to explain. It's just as natural as the weather in this moody sky today. Slightest touch of a stranger 
can set up trembling in my bones I know no one's gonna show me So deep and superficial Between the forceps and the stone Annie had an earache on a Saturday of all days. So her mom brought her to Minute Clinic at CVS, where you can see a provider, fill a prescription, and grab essentials like pain relief products, all in one visit. Even on evenings and weekends, you can even see us online with telehealth options. For quality, affordable care on your schedule, visit Minute Clinic at CVS. That's healthier made easier.
Services vary by location. See MinuteClinic.com for details. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network. Verizon. Best and most reliable based on root metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks.